way to score is, of course, to play uh, with a handbrake off. Hello, I'm Ian Stone. This is the Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. I'm joined this morning by two writers for The Athletic, James McNicholas and Michael Cox. Hello, guys. Hello, Ian. Hello. Hello, and the ex-Arsenal fullback and proud wearer of the number two shirts, Mr. <laughs> Lee Dixon. <laughs> Morning. Morning. We were just having a discussion about shirts before we started. Lee was uh, talking about how he likes players to be wearing the correct shirt. And hey, you wore that number two with distinction, if I may say so, Mr. Dixon. Thank you very much. It's wore, all right. the 12, wore the 12 a few times as well, but that was later on in my career. Yeah, see, 12, would be, 12 would be different now, wouldn't it? I mean, 12 could be on the pitch as opposed yeah. to you're the first and only sub. Um, yeah. Before we get... We are going to talk uh, a little bit about the uh, the Leicester game called Help Us. Um, before we do, um, we're going to um, talk about the fact that Jamie Vardy once again scored his, uh, as Teo, our producer, said, 1100th goal against Arsenal. Uh, and so we <laughs> thought we'd ask the question, which player over the years gave you that sense of dread in your stomach? Uh, on game day. Uh, Lee, I'll start with you. Did you get that with any players or did you look forward to the battle? I mean, I guess it's a bit of both, isn't it, really? Um, I didn't get it with players I was playing against because I was, you know, I've got no choice about that. When the team sheet comes in and you've got Ryan Giggs, then you've just got to get on with it. You know it's coming. It's work. Yeah, yeah it's work. It's what you do. I, it was always the other players who... Um, who you weren't directly against that you kind of when you look at the team you're playing against you go oh he, he seems you know and you have a word with Martin Keown that I think you might be in a bit of trouble today so and that for me always always came down to one player and it was Robbie Fowler I used to hate playing against him even though I wasn't playing against him he just seemed to have this he was just a born goal scorer and a, he put you in really nervous positions as a as a defender I always I tried to explain this to my wife the other day we were talking about something completely different but a, a really fearful uh, feeling that comes into your chest when some when you know something bad's going to happen regardless of where you are I, I I got that mostly when I was playing football and it was when I when I realized I was in a either I was in a bad position or the back four was in a bad position and you could sense if the player sees the pass, we're in. We're, they'll they'll get in and score, and almost a feeling of dread comes over you, and you try and rectify the situation. I used to get that all the time with Robbie Fowler because he he was one of those players that he, he just had a knack of being in the right place at the right time and being able to just stand in a position that made you feel uncomfortable because he was just off you a little bit. He was off Martin. He wasn't quite near Tony. I had somebody outside like Barnsley or whoever it was and he, he just had that brilliant ability. And I think that's why he scored so many goals because his positional play on the pitch was, was really, really top class. Were you playing that day I mean, was the, any... the five-minute hat-trick? Lee? What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> Have a guess. Go on. 50-50 mm, yeah. chance. Mm. I'll, 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 I'll be kind and say I think you must have been injured that day. No, I, was, <laughs> I think I was marking him for two of them. So... <laughs> That's yeah. That that's where the, that's where the nightmare um, kind of came to its its peak. I think. Sure. I mean, I mean if it's any consolation, Lee, um, we all felt that same sense of dread on occasion <laughs> watching Robbie Fowler slightly later than you. I think, uh, as we fit in the fact that you know what you're talking about, um, Michael. What about you? Sense of dread of a player coming out to play against your team? 
Yeah, just because it happened so much over the years, but Peter Crouch seemed to have a really good record against Arsenal. And it was always, I mm. mean, obviously Crouch was just, uh, had had a couple of very obvious strengths and it was just so frustrating that he always seemed to do so well against Arsenal. I'm not actually sure he scored for Spurs against Arsenal, but I can remember him doing it with Southampton and Liverpool and obviously with Stoke. Um, so yeah, Crouch just seemed to constantly be a thorn in the side. Didn't he get a hat trick against us as well? By the way, were you playing in that one, Lee? <laughs> no, I think if I, I think you'll find that if I'd have been playing against Peter Crouch with my expertise in the air, he wouldn't have scored half the goals. I didn't really play against Crouchy very much. He's a, quite a lot younger than yeah. I am. Yeah, uh, James, what about you? There's two in my mind, but I'll I'll, I'm going to go for Drogba. I've talked about yeah. it before, but he mm. was just you know he gave you that slightly sick feeling in your stomach and. From the looks of things, he seemed to do that to the Arsenal centre-halves too at times. He was just so effective against us. There was a, at least one, was it Carling Cup final maybe, where he won the game, two goals. But it just felt like every time we came up against him, he had the better of us physically, you know, he, he mentally. He just seemed the superior opponent and that made him an absolute nightmare to come up against. Yeah. I don't think Philip Senderos ever really recovered from playing against him, to be honest. I think it was <laughs> no, think really a, a nightmare for him. I think there's a few yes. Senderos would be in there. What, what about you, Ian? Um, you know what? Um, Rooney used to do it to us quite a lot, to be yeah. honest with you. I, I found, I mean, I, listen, he's a wonderful, wonderful footballer. And I saw that stat because we are talking about Jamie Vardy and the fact that I think Rooney's the only person who's scored more against us than, uh, than Jamie Vardy. And he used to do it loads I remember one a, br- a brilliant breakaway goal I've got to be honest with you when we were attacking and he got the ball on the edge of his own penalty area gave it to I think Jason Park and then ran for the return and then just swept it in from 20 yards and the whole the inevitability of it really got me and this was part of why why um Sunday was so depressing as well. I mean, the number of people on Twitter, oh, here comes Jamie Vardy and Mustafi's on the pitch as well, and we know what's <laughs> going to happen, and that's exactly what did happen as well. And by the way, this is your last chance to subscribe to The Athletic for just £1 a month. You'll be able to access all of our great writing on Arsenal and so much more. The offer ends this week, so if, if you've been thinking about trying us out, this is the perfect time. Go to The Athletic dot com forward slash arsenal pod to sign up that's the athletic.com forward slash arsenal pod and pay just one pound a month this episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the nba want to get closer to the game than ever before Michelob ultra courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive nba prizes and experiences like official gear courtside seats to an nba game and more Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. We sort of thought we'd talk a little bit about creativity today because there was no doubt, although Arsenal dominated quite a bit in the first half of that game, they didn't create as much as you would like uh, so we thought we'd talk about creativity and why aren't Arsenal creating Lee is creativity in a, in a team it's not that you leave it to the attacking players but it, you expect more from them right your job is to to protect the lead so that the creative players can do their thing or do you see it as more than that um, I think it's quite, it's too simplistic to say that creating things for a team is down to certain players. Obviously, this the 
the skill element, the vision, all of that sort of stuff. You tend to look at the midfield and the strikers for that. But it, it the setup of the team for me um, and how you create uh, throughout the lines and, and putting the right players in the right position on the pitch to be able to do that. And it's, it's, it's so complicated to try and focus it on one area and say, well, he's not playing well, so you can't create anything. I mean, it was pretty obvious the other night, when you look at the midfield, Ceballos was, you know, his creativity, which is what he's there for, is, is, wasn't evident at all. Um, and the two players alongside him in midfield, you would say, well, you know, is that their job? And what are the forwards doing? How, you know, what, do they go wandering around trying to find the ball if the ball's not being there? So in, a, in an ideal game, you get a base to go from and, and the midfielder in positions on the pitch where they don't have to, they don't have to track back as much because the back four's doing their job and you, you've got more energy. There's, there's so many things that go into a game that, 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 enable the team to function at 100% and so but there's still a there's still a massive hole when I look at the side um, in that department as an individual forget how the team's playing what system they're playing and all of that you've got you've still got to have a player who's, who can see a pass you know see a pass and if you take it to the extreme of of you know my hero when I was playing Dennis Burkamp at the club you know he had he was a striker, he scored goals, he wasn't prolific, but he had the ability to be able to understand where to be when the ball was coming to him that he already knew that he would have runners off the ball. And that's a two-way street as well because every time the ball went to Dennis, Wrighty or, or Thierry or Freddie Lundberg, didn't even have to think, didn't even have to go... All oh, right. If he gets that, where's the defender? Because they just look at the weakness, look at the holes, look at the gaps, and go, "I'm making a run." And nine times out of ten, the ball would come because the reliance on that player is absolute. Um, I think if you find, if you look at Arsenal right now, any of the forwards making a run, it will either be a slightly later because they're not sure what the player's going to do, whether the player's in the right area on the pitch to make the pass. So it's it's all a little bit. Um, dampened down so it's not that snap when a team's really you know understands each other and that's why when we have a good game and everyone goes oh you know we're doing really well aren't we we're doing this we're progressing the the, the where to get to to for all of that sort of stuff to be instantaneous most weeks when a team is firing and, and, and at the top of the league like Liverpool like Man City were um, that takes years and so you can you might get there on the odd occasion when they are, when the opposition is just off their game and you're finding those little pockets, but to do that week in week out and be pressing for one and two at the top of the league is we're so far away from that and the creativity side of that is a big part of it. You know, and that's not even mentioning defensively, which is as we saw the other night, still way from being right. James, I want to pick up on a point that Lee made there about lacking that player, that that Burkamp esque type player who who can unlock defences. I mean, Lee mentioned Liverpool there. You can look at their midfield. Let's say you took Gini Wijnaldum, Jordan Henderson and Fabinho. You wouldn't say that any of those three are that player. They seem to attack more down the flanks. Can we not Can we not copy that sort of, uh, uh, of idea and perhaps get our creativity elsewhere? Well, I think that's what we had to do to an extent in the Leicester game. I mean, Leicester sat in pretty deep. They were quite 
narrow and, and compact and it, it gave us space on the flanks, Tierney and Bellerin overlapping. And, you know, in the first half, that's where our chances were coming from, principally Tierney from those long crossfield passes from, from David Louise. Um, so sometimes that's an option you kind of have to take. I don't know if it's always the ideal, but to a certain extent, circumstance dictates what you have to do. I think Lee's point about an individual player who is missing is absolutely fair. I mean, we've been very blessed at Arsenal historically with, you know, people like Dennis Burkamp, you know, through to Cesc Fabregas, you know, Mesut Ozil, Jack Wilshere, lots of these players who operate really well in space. And I think what unifies a lot of these players is while we remember their great moments on the ball, so much of their game is about their capacity to find space off the ball. You know, that willingness to drop in, to, you know, distance themselves from their markers, to take people into uncomfortable positions, as Lee was saying about Robbie Fowler earlier in the show. And I think one of Arsenal's problems at the moment is just that things look quite static. You know, Mikel Arteta's come in and applied a, a, a very rigid, rigid sorry, structure to this team. And that's really helped in some respects. But I think going forward, sometimes it looks a little bit, uh, how can I put it, a little bit too structured. And maybe that, you know, it, it requires someone who's slightly more maverick or individualistic who can break out of that and create opportunities. But I'd be fascinated to know Michael's interpretation because it is definitely a, a problem for Arteta right now. Well, Michael, this is, I mean, is it too structured? Are we not uh, adventurous enough? You know, we have sorted the defending out, sorry, Lee, to a certain extent. Obviously, when he brings Skodra and Mustafi on and he, and he switches off, and I want to ask you about that in a short while, there are obviously still defensive problems, but we're not as open as we used to be. But is it at the expense of our attacking play, Michael? Um I'm not sure I would say that, to be honest. I mean, I think Arsenal are attacking with enough players. I don't think on uh, on Sunday it was that they were keeping too many players back. I, I just thought that there wasn't really any combination play. They weren't getting the right players on the ball. I think Arteta seems to want to develop Lacazette into a kind of striker who can come short and play in the hole. And there's a couple Firmino. of games... Yeah, yeah, Basically. pretty much. That's I mean, there's yeah. a couple of games where he, he did that well. I think actually a home to Leicester back end of the last season, he, he did it quite well. And then there's games like the one on Sunday where he just constantly seems to be dispossessed and constantly conceding fouls and always complaining at others. And when that doesn't work, it does seem to completely fall down in terms of playing through the centre of the pitch. Um, so, yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say it's that Arsenal have become too defensive. It just seems like they, they just didn't get the ball into the right players for me. And and so, therefore, Lee, if that is the case, if Michael is right, and it did appear that that is exactly what happened, do you not have to, as a coach, be a bit more proactive in, in those situations and go, OK, Lacazette's not playing as as well as we'd like, so we have to change the focus of the attack a little bit? Well, I think in an ideal situation, then, as fans, if you're sitting in, this, in, the, um, in the stand or watching it at home on the TV... Um, something isn't quite going right, and the game's not. You you you're obviously looking down at the at the bench and going, well, what's the manager doing about it? And let's we we just have to remember as well that Arteta's still very very young in his managerial career, and there's lots of lots of qualities going go into making a a top quality coach. And there's no doubt that he's made an impact at the club. You know, I've been very vocal about how well I think he's done, etc. But there's always a there's always a caveat to that saying, you know, he's been in the job five minutes. So the ability to be able to see see a system that fits your players is one thing. Being able to adapt that when the game is going away from you or not quite working is another completely different 
um, string to your bow. Um, and with him being, you know, there'll be certain, there'll be so many patterns in his head. And uh, Michael will tell you when you're looking at tactics and you're looking at situations and how the game's panning out, the more experience you've got, the more times you've seen patterns of play and work out, well, last time that happened, we added this, so maybe I should make that change. There's all those things going on. And, and, and relatively, he hasn't got an awful lot of experience in that um, situation. It's finals all sitting in the stand in our ivory towers and sitting at home going, well, why do you know, Lacazette's playing rubbish. Why don't you get him off and change it? There might be other things going on on the pitch at that specific time. He might be trying to work an avenue where he see, sees that there's a little bit of a weakness and he's trying to do it. And in the meantime, the game's going on. You've only got 90 minutes. It's quite difficult to cram it all in when things are going wrong, to work out. I think that's the biggest thing of a coach is that I think biggest assessment for me as a coach is when things are going well, I'm not really that bothered about watching you know because you're just enjoying the moment it's the coach he's paid gets his money when things start to go badly and it's and he needs to work something out whether it be a substitution a tactical change as he see what what has he seen that that the where are we getting hurt or where can we expose it and that that's the difference between the the experienced good coaches and the ones that 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 are not quite there yet and and you know He's not quite there yet, and that might. But also, you're only you've only got the players you've got, and you know it's still early days in his tenure in that respect. And he yes. and, I, and he still needs new, still needs more players, as far as I'm concerned. Certainly in the middle of the midfield. Michael, it sounds a little bit like airline pilots when things are going well on autopilot <laughs> and everything's fine. It's just when there's um, when something goes wrong with the plane, you want the most experienced airline pilot possible. Is it? Fans have to be patient, right? Because as we as Lee has been saying, he's a young coach and he's up against Brendan Rodgers, who I know he gets some stick, but he's coached at a high level for the last what 10, 15 years. Uh, maybe he just got a little bit outthought. Yeah, to a certain extent. And I think it's worth remembering that in the previous home game uh, against Sheffield United, Arsenal were not particularly impressive in the first half. And then Arteta made what I thought was quite an interesting, quite a bold change, which was taking off Nketiah, who was the main striker, putting on Pepe and really completely rejigging the system. I think Willian went from the right to the left. Um, and within 10 minutes, Arsenal had scored two really good goals, I think both involving Pepe. So the previous weekend, he had made a very good, very effective substitution. So... Yeah, it's, he's not going to get it right every time. I think there was some slightly questionable things he did. I mean, I didn't really understand Aubameyang down the right. I'm I'm not looking to go into the debate of whether he should play up front or not. I Personally, I quite like him on the left. <laughs> I, I assume he probably played there because Arteta looked at the defence and thought, well, Fuchs isn't the quickest. Uh, James Justin has, has sometimes struggled this season. Let's just put our best striker there. But, I mean, from an early stage... I mean, I can't remember anything about Bamiyang really did aside from linking uh, the play for that Bellerin volley, which was the only shot in the second half. I was surprised Missing that... The header yeah. from the uh, header, Tierney's yeah. cross. That was the other one. Good, good shout. But I, I was surprised he persisted with that for as long as he did. But uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't be too critical on him considering he, he did get it right against Sheffield United the previous, the previous weekend. James, we're talking about patience and the fact that Arteta has only been in the job five minutes, essentially. And I know that I was sitting there going, take Lacazette on, bring take Lacazette off, bring Pepe on and put uh, Aubameyang down the middle. Uh, is it too simplistic or is it... Or, I mean, I mean, I know it is. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not to say there's nothing to that idea. I think, you know, if you've got a striker like Pierre-Eric Aubameyang, it's natural to 
think, you know, what could he do operating in that central space? Could he offer you more movement there? But I also, I mean, I think Mikel Arteta, you know, clearly has shown a preference for playing Aubameyang from the left. And it's not something he's doing to spite himself. It's something he's doing because he thinks it's the best thing. I tend to agree with Michael. From the right, he's less effective. But in that inside left channel, he can be really good. I think the important thing is that when he does start from that position, you know, Arsenal play in such a way that it, it, they they move up the pitch high enough that he's granted that freedom to actually get inside. You know, if he's actually out on the touchline, that's not what anybody wants. But if you're just playing that system correctly, uh, then he's got the the sort of freedom to to roam in, in field from there. Um, but I, listen, I think Lacazette is also a player who's really short of form at the moment. And I think that we're seeing some of his limitations because he's, you know, he's in a bit of a rut. And, uh, you know, maybe if that goal's given in, in the third minute, it lifts his confidence and helps him a bit. But it feels like he can't catch a break at the minute. Quite. I mean, Lee, watching that game on Sunday, one, I don't understand why that goal was disallowed, but it did seem to affect him. But the essential truth is if Jamie Vardy's playing for us instead of them, we win that game, right? Yeah, I mean, you can take Jamie Vardy out of the Leicester team and put him in most teams and you win more games than you won't with him, you know, without him because he's he is a quality striker. There's no doubt about that. Brendan Rodgers quite rightly, rightly singing his praises after the game and um, bringing him on like that and, and just being in a position where you can... Uh, almost towards the end of a game as well when you know that players are getting tired, you know that... That's when somebody like that can just the difference between you know start of a game and being bang on it, full of adrenaline, adrenaline, and not you know fully concentrated, and then towards the end of a game when certainly players get tired in body and mind, and that's the the key to it. Because if you if you go through the goal and you actually <laughs> say to you know stop yes. the players in a in a in a in certain positions of the goal. Um, and it's the start of the game. You would like to think you would like you would like to think that certain players would make different decisions than they did, you know, when the goal happened. And Jamie, Jamie Vardy would probably make the same decisions whether he's on the pitch from the start yes. to finish. So the only thing different would be the positional players of the defenders. So the goal wouldn't have happened. So it is a it's a mental uh, lack of concentration. You know, tiredness, whatever you want to put it down to, it'll be some reason around that 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 goal happened when it did, and the player that scored was, um, and it's no coincidence that the player that created the goal is is that type of player as well, who wants to spin and go in the hole and and you know ripped four or five players to pieces in one one ball over the top, and and it's all over. So um, that's something that has happened since football began. Players getting tired of mind. But the better players concentrate for longer when they're tired. When they're tired. So th- that's what happens. That's just the, the difference. It's not about how many keepy-ups you can do. It's not about how fast you can run. A lot of the game is concentration and a really, really top-class player or defenders in those situations. And we can say, yeah, we're defending a lot better. But it's moments like that that you go, do you know what? That shouldn't happen. The communication, I'm talking about not just Mustafi, but Gabriel and Xhaka, the, the communication on the, the last line of defence has to be 100% for 90 minutes and that's it. There's no, There can be no drop in that. When the drop happens, that's when goals go in. I do remember Rio Ferdinand talking about how 
he, I mean, he, I think he improved as a defender in his 30s. And I think you'd probably say the same about Tony Adams as well. And it's it's about that level of com- concentration. Are we all agreed that Mustafi was generally at fault for that goal by um, by just not being positionally aware? Lee, I'll ask you first, because I know that Gabriel was basically saying to him, you've got to you've got to cover this situation because I've got to get across because you can see the thing developing. Is it Mustafi's fault for just not concentrating in that uh, position or just was he done by a top-class striker? Yeah, I give credit to the strikers, but you can't pin... You can't. Most goals, you, you don't pin it on one person because the obvious mistake, they go, oh, it's Mustafi's fault. There's mistakes gone on... The two mistakes gone on before that happened with the with the... Uh, the two, the marking of the player too tight, who's going to obviously spin into the hole behind you, of Gabriel not seeing that that's the possibility and being further over to the left in the first place, so he can have as much go at Mustafi for not being there when Vardy puts it in, but if he's further over earlier, then the piece of rope drags Mustafi over <laughs> narrower anyway. That's how it yeah. works. If he doesn't, then the obvious mistake is is highlighted by the fact that Mustafi's 30 yards away from his centre-half. So if Gabriel goes earlier because he can smell the danger down that right-hand channel, when he can see the player on the ball who's got some space, and knowing that player can hit that ball because that's the type of player he is, straight away the alarm bells have gone off and you go, do you know what, I'm going to go over to the left and we'll drop off a bit. So Gabriel can moan all he likes. But if he put his hand up and said, you know what, I could have gone earlier because I can see Tielemans on the ball and I can see we're in a bit of trouble here. So, And then don't get me going on Xhaka because we'll be here all day. Um, <laughs> so the, 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 there is, yeah. there is, it's too simplistic to go, Vardy's got a free header, where's Mustafi? Yes, of course Mustafi should be over, but he's not over earlier because Gabriel didn't go over early enough. So it's a chain reaction. And Michael, uh, we won't get Lee going on uh, Xhaka, but <laughs> Xhaka didn't get close enough to Tielemans to stop him playing that pass, right? Yeah, I mean, I thought it was a really good goal. I know we're not here to praise Leicester, but no, I, wouldn't not, too, <laughs> I wouldn't be too harsh on, on Mustafi. I just thought it was a brilliant pass in behind, really great float across. And even if um, Mustafi had been across, I still think it would have been tough for him to get in the position to stop the header. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was one of those things, but yeah, it was... Um, it was frustrating because I think, especially first half, Arsenal defended well, not in the sense of defending deep and being on the edge of the box and heading the ball away because they didn't have to do that, but just stopping any kind of counter-attack. And I think maybe they, they left more space when Arsenal were pushing forward more and trying to get back in the game. James, one more question to you about mm. this, about not so much creativity, but about Arsenal and how the project is going. I I thought that was one of the best halves of football that they played since, uh, certainly this season. I feel, and I, and I was generally encouraged. It really fell away in the second half quite considerably, possibly because of the changes that Brendan Rodgers made. But did you see encouragement in that first half display? Yeah, there were aspects of it I really liked. I liked that you know they were able to release both fullbacks to get forward, probably for the first time this season. Uh, they had more attempts on goal, which they've been very shot shy in recent games. And as Michael says, they didn't really permit Leicester anything on the counter-attack. Granted, they only had, I think it was Harvey Barnes playing up top at that time, but, you know, no Vardy on the pitch. But I thought Arsenal had a good first 45 minutes. I think the, you know, the frustration that we're seeing from fans is obviously on account of the, the second half and the fact that, you know, not only did we concede a very sloppy goal, and I think Lee's illustrated why we did that perfectly, I think the blame is kind of shared on that one quite collectively. 
Um, but also we didn't offer a great deal going forward and, and the shots really dried up. And, you know, the, the way we were playing out in that half, it was very, uh, quite repetitive, really. It was looking out through Shaka every time yeah. in the kind of the left centre half role, building up on that flank. Leicester, I thought, got quite wise to it. Uh, and we struggled. But I, I do think Michael makes a good point as well about the goal they scored. You know, the pass that Tielemans made is a brilliant pass. And it is the it's kind of thing pass, that yeah. we, we want to see more of in this Arsenal team. You know, players playing the brave ball, playing the ball in behind, um, taking a, a couple more risks. And I think, you know, he's a player who could do that. I'd like to see the likes of, you know, Shaka, Sabayos doing that, if if it's within their locker, doing that more than the sort of, you know, square ball that we're a little bit tired of seeing. Michael, um, I, yeah, I'm told you didn't like that second half at all. I think you weren't alone in that. And when James said we, we didn't offer a lot, what he means is sod all, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was it was incredibly flat after the first first half. It was only really the, the better in volley, I thought. Arsenal did anything, anything, yeah, and it was just frustrating. And as you touched on, it was just the inevitability of it. I mean, it was just so obvious that as soon as Vardy came on, yeah. it was it wasn't just the balls in behind. I just thought Leicester's game plan completely changed. They, for the first time in the game, they actually started trying to take control of the midfield, and it was almost like Arsenal were being asked questions they just weren't in the first half. And yeah, I think things kind of collapsed from there. But I mean, in fairness, it's been six games. Arsenal have lost three, which isn't great, but they've lost to City and Liverpool and Leicester and they've been three of the last season top five so the strange thing is it's almost like a role reversal from the the back end of last season when Arsenal seemed very good against the big sides and struggled against the the bottom half sides that they should have been putting away quite easily so yeah if they can match the two if they can match the beating the the big sides and beating the the lower half sides then they'll be in business if if What a brilliant way to end the first half. See you soon. Cheers, guys. Cheers, Mike. See you, man. Lee. Cheers. Thank you. We were a bit uh, with the handbrake at time. This is Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for The Athletic. Ian Stone here, joined by James McNicholas and Michael Cox from The Athletic. Uh, one person we didn't mention in all that chat was uh, Thomas Partey, who uh, played, well, he, he uh, made his his full debut. He started against Rapid Vienna and was excellent uh, playing in that role. And we thought, hello, we've got someone here. Um, James, you wrote about Thomas Partey after the Leicester game, about they they seemed to sort of use him almost as a decoy, didn't they? Well, I, I thought Arteta did uh, an interesting thing with his midfield three, where he sort of deployed them flat across the pitch. I mean, Shaka was kind of out uh, on that left-hand side. Ceballos was on the right. And Arteta all game was kind of screaming at Danny Ceballos, trying to keep him on that right touchline. Partey in the middle. You know, the, I, I think the logic was that Leicester had quite a sort of lo- a high number of players in that central block. So they tried to build up on the flanks. Consequently, it just meant, particularly in the second half, Partey just didn't get on the ball at all. Um, and I think... It was kind of interesting because, you know, while we're all excited about this signing, excited about this player, I do wonder if it tells us a little bit about maybe how Arteta views him. You know, is, is he a player he likes as much for his off-the-ball qualities as his on them? But it did make for a strange sight, him sort of dropping short, trying to get passes off centre-halves uh, and then looking quite frustrated when he when he didn't receive them. 
But did you also think, Michael? I mean, I watched I watched this game, and I and I was so frustrated on a number of occasions. I remember David Luiz having the ball and not giving it to him, and in the second half, the centre half was doing the same thing. And it it seemed to me partly because he was he was in uh, an area with three Leicester players not too far from him, and. I'm not saying they don't trust him, but they it's an easier pass to go out wide to Xhaka or Ceballos. Yeah, I think you're spot on in. And and I think that actually, it, it kind of shows what a good player party is that Rodgers, I think, based his entire first half game plan around stopping Arsenal and getting the ball to him. And I agree with James that there were situations where Arsenal could have done better and, and almost forced the pass into him and trusted him a bit more. But yeah, it, it just looked to me like they almost made a kind of cage of players around him and just said to Arsenal, look, you can go to Ceballos, you go to Xhaka. And Ceballos is a really creative player as well, but clearly Rodgers was much happier to direct passes out towards Ceballos than to um, than to Parse. So uh, again, you know, sorry to be praising Leicester too much, but I do think you've got to give him great credit for the game plan that worked in two completely different ways. One, to basically shut down and, and nullify Arsenal's strengths. And then in the last half hour to exploit their weaknesses. Um and yeah, as you say, I thought Pato was was excellent against uh, Rapid Vienna, and I'm sure we'll sure we'll see uh, we'll see more of him. But uh, yeah, I thought Leicester did very well just to block off the passes to him more than anything. Well, there's two things about that Rapid Vienna game, uh, or two things about what you just said. In the Rapid Vienna game, he was the main man uh, uh, in the midfield, right? So therefore, he's going to be the one who who uh, who receives the ball more. But is it also the fact, James, that? Because he reminds us a little bit of Patrick Vieira, and I know this is maybe a bit more hope than anything else, but Patrick Vieira was told by the players to demand the ball, to demand the ball, even in tight spaces, because everyone, because people who were watching him knew how good he was. Maybe Thomas Partey has got to be doing the same thing and go, no, 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 I know there's three Leicester players within 10 yards, but you give me the ball because I can make something happen. Well, I mean, Patrick Vieira, you could give him the ball with those three defenders on him, like you say, and he had, he had the ability to turn away from them, you know, drive into space. As good as I think Partey is, I'm not sure he's at that level. You know, Vieira was a really, really special player. And I think we would be... Uh, I think Partey would, would have to really surpass expectations to, to get to those heights. But I think it, it's a good point Michael makes about you know, how well Leicester played. And we always come to a game so much with our Arsenal goggles on and looking at what we did wrong, what we did right. But so much of it as well is obviously informed by the opposition. And I think it is an interesting perspective to look at the ways in which, you know, they prevented us maybe, you know, following plan A. But you make a good point as well about Elneny playing alongside him against Vienna. And Elneny is sort of by nature a facilitator, I think, in midfield. He's a great player to kind of make other players look good. I think it'll be really interesting to see how Partey and Shaka combine or don't, you know, because I still think that for all the criticism, to a certain extent, Arteta has kind of made it quite clear that in build-up, this is sort of Shaka's team. Uh, and yes. when Shaka plays, everything does go through him. And so how that responsibility is shared between Shaka and Partey, because obviously Shaka was absent in Vienna, is going to be a really interesting development over the next few months. Yeah, I mean, I would say to that, that if it is Shaka's team, I'm not sure him playing out on the left is the place for him to be. I thought he'd be directed traffic down the middle. I mean, one of the things you did right this week, uh, you and uh, Amy, uh, yeah. about Granite Xhaka and this... Um well, I mean, uh, I mean, coming back from that awful game against Crystal Palace, which we talked on this, uh, we talked about on this podcast many times, mm. and is 
his strength of character um, uh, to be able to do what he did, to come back from that, is quite an impressive thing. Certainly, yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people might have their grievances with Shaka about errors he's made in the past or limitations that he might have to his game. But uh, on the mental side, his resilience is quite remarkable. When you speak to people in the club, you know, the respect that there is for that is unwavering. And uh, I think, you know, with Arteta, they had obviously conversations a year ago when everything happened with Palace and Shaka looked to be out the door. And it was a bit of a meeting of minds. I mean, they are in some respects quite kindred spirits, both very driven people, both very determined, not entirely dissimilar as players, you know, playing the centre yes. of the field without uh, a yard of pace, really, but basing their game on the, the mental aspects of the game and to an extent the technical one. And uh, I, you know, I think I sensed a lot of frustration, certainly on social media, online, what I was reading with Shaka's performance the other night. I'm not sure I see Arteta jettisoning him anytime soon. I think he trusts him uh, implicitly. I think he's really one of his lieutenants. But I do think that in theory, you know, there is a balance to be struck there with Partey. And he is a player who could potentially offset some of Shaka's flaws. I mean, I know, you know, the scouting department, when they watched Partey, they were thinking of him as someone who could bring the best out of Shaka and sort of, you know, balance and, and counteract him to an extent. So I, I hope that can happen. It, it needs to happen. And it'll be interesting to see what Sabahis' role in, in all this is as well. I, I felt the move to a midfield three felt like a, a progressive and important step from Arteta. But the balance and the way in which it operates, the execution of that, obviously isn't quite there yet. Michael, do you think Granit Xhaka gets in the, at the midfield of any of the other top six teams? Um, probably not. Um, maybe Hjoiberg at Tottenham, he could get in ahead of her. I don't really like Hjoiberg that much. Yeah, I find him an incredibly frustrating player, Xhaka. I mean, he's just, he he just, he's not a terrible player, but he does a lot of terrible things, I think, you know, is the polite way of putting it. He does just, just give the ball away in really frustrating positions and switch off in situations. Um, that makes him very frustrating to watch. I think. I mean, I, I, he's a kind of player that I think you probably will need um, in a in a kind of forward thinking possession based side, which is what Arteta is trying to build. And I don't entirely uh, have a problem with the kind of unusual role he played at the weekend. I, I thought it kind of made sense, but yeah, he, he he does frustrate me. And of course, he was. I mean, it's not his fault, but it, you know, if that offside decision had gone the other way with when he was in front of the goalkeeper, may, maybe we'd be talking about a different game. Yeah. I mean that, that. I mean that is sort of the elephant in the room to a certain extent. But I guess after three minutes, if that happens, you feel like you've cheated out of a goal. But you have to adapt and get on with it. And I don't think they quite, maybe Lacazette, as we said, didn't quite cover uh, recover from that. Uh, Michael, you wrote a piece uh, last week about uh, the throw-ins. Incredibly detailed piece, I must say. <laughs> and and it and uh, because we had the discussion a couple of weeks ago when we talked about Arsene Wenger. Uh, and one of the things uh, that he suggested was uh, a kick in as opposed to a throw in, and you very, very nicely uh, took that argument apart. Um, I mean, the conclusions are that um, I mean Arsene Wenger is right to to say that he wants um, he wants to quicken up the game, but as you said, a kick in might give the advantage a bit too much to the attacking team. Well, yeah, I just think you know if you're playing Burnley and they have a throw in on the halfway line. 
You, it's a free kick. Yeah, exactly. And you can't you can't be offside from a throw-in, so you probably have to change that as well. Because if you can't be offside from essentially a free kick on the halfway line, Burnley are going to put Tarkovsky and Ben Mee in front of the goalkeeper and get Westwood to launch it downfield. And I think they would change that, though, wouldn't they? Let's be fair. I mean, if you're going to change something as fundamental as throw-ins, you would probably look at the... Um, I mean, to be honest, what I would say to FIFA is read your article <laughs> and look at the possibilities of what might happen. Yeah, possibly. I, you know, I, I think Wenger has kind of identified an issue with the laws. I'm just not entirely convinced that his solution works best. So, yeah, the point in the article was just saying, why are the laws about how you throw the ball in quite so strict? I mean, why does it have to be above your head? Why does it have to be a throw rather than dropping the ball? And, and I think it applies not just to pre- uh, Premier League football, but just to like amateur Sunday League you know, level and, and junior football. I mean, maybe things have moved on and everyone's playing tiki-taka now, but when I was playing kids football, if you had a throw, you just launched it as far as possible <laughs> down the line because you didn't want to lose the ball. And what no. we want to encourage kids to do is basically get the ball down and play. So I think, you know, if you want to chuck the ball almost underarm to your teammates who can just get football going as quickly as possible then that's a better solution than than kicking which I, I think will just lead to more route one football personally yeah uh, are there any rule changes you, you'd like to see I'll ask you both this James are there any, any things that you'd like to see uh, that's a big question I mean I, I definitely don't want to see kickings. the thought of Arsenal having to defend kickings, you know in a away game in the final few moments really really worries me um, but rule changes I mean I've got a lot of grievances with the application of VAR but I don't think uh, that's let's, particularly novel let's not get into that yeah. right now uh, can I can I put one forward I know that Arsene Wenger essentially suggested this um, was that you can take the free kick to yourself I, I think that would negate a lot of tactical fouling uh, to be honest because you could just get on with the game I always find it annoying when the the attacking team has an advantage uh, a tactical foul happens and it and everyone gets back in position but I think if you could just take the free kick to yourself and get on with it, um, I think that would move things on much uh, quicker. What do you think, Michael? Yeah, I mean, definitely on the on the theme of tactical fouls, I think that's something that needs to be kind of stamped out of the game, so to speak. I just think it, if you're a counter-attacking side, you might get three opportunities to launch a break. And if you're playing... I mean, Arsenal had this against City, I thought. City in the first half, three or four times, just very deliberately... Um, fouled to stop a break and often without a yellow card and deliberately what Pep Guardiola says it never happens <laughs> well I mean in that Amazon documentary the the biggest <laughs> proponent of tactical fouling was Mikel Arteta so I won't <laughs> I won't get too much of my high horse but I mean it comes back to you remember that one Xhaka had against Swansea where he got a red card you never see a red card in that situation but it was a red card though I mean I it was right in front of us that one and you went no that's too much in the same way that Luke Shaw should have got a red card the other week against Spurs oh, absolutely for what was essentially an act of thuggery and and I felt the same way about Xhaka I completely agree with you and if that will be a red card for every challenge like that in future then I think football will be a better game so uh, yeah I agree with you in in terms of uh, in terms of tactical fouling I think that's the biggest issue with the laws at the moment uh, Michael before uh, you go um, you're doing the zonal marking podcast uh, who's on it uh, this week what are you particularly concentrating on uh, well, we have our statistical whiz kid Tom Warville with this this week. He was off for a few weeks because he suffered a nasty injury in a five-a-side game, but he's back and we are, uh, well, we're basing it around unquestionably the, the most interesting fixture of the weekend, which is Fulham against West Brom on uh, Monday at 5.30. <laughs> the and we're basing, Yeah, the, the, absolutely the biggest one. Um, 
And we're basically looking at what newly promoted sides need to do to survive, you know, looking back over the last few years in terms of how many points they need and, and precisely what you need from your team because there's been uh, there's been a couple of examples of teams coming up and doing really well with, with Sheffield United and Wolves and, and maybe Leeds this season. But, um, you know, that's maybe slightly distorted the picture. It, it does seem to be actually more difficult than ever for newly promoted sides to uh, to survive and probably this season more than ever because of the, you know, the financial restrictions. West Brom and Fulham can't go out and buy loads of players because because they're not getting the revenue in. So, yeah, we're going to have a look at uh, look, to, look forward to that game and look forward to, uh, yeah, what they'll be doing for the rest of the campaign. I must say, by the way, that, that for an excuse to be off work from the Athletic, a nasty, in, nasty injury in a five-a-side is as good <laughs> as it gets, I feel. That, that yeah. is commitment to the cause. Uh, before we go, let's have a song. By the way, uh, and, and uh, Taya Papula, our, our producer, put this, and I, I had heard this, uh, Deneo, who I believe is uh, a, a Ghanaian uh, rock pop star. I was going to say rock star, but I think that would be wrong. <laughs> was played at the Emirates this week uh, to honour uh, Thomas Partey. Uh, it's very nice. Although they also played I Could Be So Good For You, the uh, Dennis Walker yeah. reminder that he was... <laughs> well, a half-time was a little bit weird. But uh, do we have a song? Uh, James, we'll start with you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think Danae is a, a good shout, um, so maybe that would be the one. In, on the theme of creativity, I was going to say Express Yourself, NWA. Don't be another Not Madonna. No, actually, but why not? I mean, Amy's away, Ian, so it's your chance to choose whatever <laughs> song you like. No, 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 it's fine. It's fine. I'll, I'll have the NWA one. Why not? I'm down with the kids. What, what have you got for us, Michael? A song. I've never been in this position on uh, on this podcast before. You always <laughs> Sorry, you usually dispatch him at the end always, of part one. Yeah, you always boot me off halfway through. I tell you what, Michael will be back in a couple of weeks to tell us the song you would have had. Express yourself, it is. I'm not going to argue with you, James. It's actually a marvellous song uh, by NWA. And uh, uh, yes, that's what we want the Arsenal to do. This has been uh, the Arsenal podcast, Handbrake Off, the Arsenal podcast for the Athletics. Thank you to Michael. Thank you to James. And thank you to Lee Dixon. And thank you to Tara Papula, our producer. I'm Ian Stone. See you soon.